Have you been zombified by memes? Oh, definitely. Yeah? Yeah, they've sucked many hours right out of my life. I've been zombified by them by proxy because my kids, they just will repeat over and over again at the dinner table these, you know, chants and, you know, songs that they listen to on the internet and then they just like they can't stop it just keeps happening over and over again and i I have no idea what they're talking about half the time yeah me too like like (laughs) greta will show me something and i'll be like i don't get it at all and it's like well you have to have seen these seven other videos and then it makes sense yeah well i haven't (laughs) welcome to the zombified podcast your source for fresh brains I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lindbergh-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and brain and meme enthusiast. Yeah, we're really into brains. Mm-hmm. So we should make memes about brains. Oh, yeah. So. We kind of do. We have like the whole, you know, hijack brains That's images as true. part so. of our... Brand, our zombified brand. Yeah, so today we get to talk about memes and culture and imitation and how information spreads and how we evolve to take on information from others. So we're not just talking about like memes that people find on the internet, right? There's like other types of memes. Yeah, we're talking about the deep roots of memes in our human evolutionary history and how important cultural transmission is for humans regardless of if they are in modern technological societies or in traditional societies where they don't have smartphones. Wow. Yeah, so so we talk with Lee Kronk, who is an anthropologist and an expert on both culture and evolution. Cool. And what is your favorite thing about today's episode? I love the stories that Lee tells about um, tricking his kids all right. <laughs> That's my favorite part. All right. I can't wait. <laughs> so let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Lee Kronk. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over Awesome to have you here on Zombified. Um, we know each other very well. We yes, know each other for, that's true. We figured it out at some point, but it's more than 10 years, right? Yeah, about 11. I mean, I think we first met about 15 years ago, but about 11 we've been working together. Yeah, so would you introduce yourself for everyone sure. who's with us who doesn't know you as well as I do? Sure. So I'm Lee Cronk. I'm a, a professor of anthropology at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, what else do you need to know about me? Um, what kind of things are you interested <laughs> in? Um, are you zombified by your dog? I am zombified by my dog. Um, my dog's name is Rufus. He's uh, uh, a mix of uh, poodle and German shepherd, and he's great. And he's totally zombified me. Um, I didn't. We didn't have a dog. I never had a dog until I had Rufus. Uh, my son had the idea that it would uh, be a great thing, and it turns out he was right. 
Um, so yeah, I'm zombified by my dog for sure. And yeah. what, what kind of things are you interested in academically? Academically, a lot of the work I do lately is on cooperation. I have a project um, called the Human Generosity Project that you're co-director of. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, which is all about cooperation across human societies. Um, and uh, I co-authored a book with my wife, Beth Leach, on cooperation called Meeting at Grand Central. So the focus of most of my work these days is on cooperation. Um a big part of cooperation in humans is culture. Uh, we would not be able to um, cooperate the way we do if we did not have so much culture. Um, and just like any kind of culture, does culture in general make for cooperation? Or does not, it have to be a certain kind of? It has to be a certain kind of culture. So culture, so just to step back a little bit, culture means a lot of different things to different people. Um, it means in the popular parlance, it means things like uh, symphony orchestras and operas yeah, so and art. Are more cultured people more cooperative? Yeah. Um, no. No. <laughs> because they're in, in the, the way anthropologists view it, there is no such thing as anybody who's more cultured than anybody else. Uh, all information that gets transmitted from person to person, however it gets transmitted, whether it's highbrow or lowbrow or uh, anything at all, um, counts as culture, at least the, the way I define memes? it. Are memes as much culture yeah. as a symphony is? Like memes like the internet things? Yeah, are, internet memes, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. The word meme actually was coined by Richard Dawkins, a biologist, when he was looking for a word to talk about units of culture as units of information transmission. Um, and yes, uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is a meme in that sense. It's a unit of information transmission. Um, and so is a picture of a cat saying, I... Can I has cheeseburger, however it goes. Um, those are all units of information transmission, so they all count as culture, as culture traits or memes. Do you think they're all equal? Um, it is not for me to judge. <laughs> no, seriously, the scientific stance is that it's not, that's not the job of the scientist. The job of the scientist is to explain something. In my case, I see my job as explaining behavior, human behavior. And so... I wear one hat when I'm being a scientist and judging or, and, and deciding whether I have a good or a bad explanation of a behavior. But then I have another hat I wear when I do things in my own life, like pick music to play or what plays to go see or what movies to watch. <clears throat> then, yes, I, I judge just the same way everybody does, that some are better than others. But my judgments may be different from yours and so on. And there's nothing... Um, objective about those sorts of judgments. I had this uh, argument with my daughter who's mm. 13 about memes. She, you know, talks about memes all the time. Mm -hmm. And huge. Yeah. and I said, you know, Ivana, memes actually came from like my field of like evolutionary mm -hmm. biology <laughs> and behavior and all of that. And yeah. they, you know, they mean a unit of cultural transmission. And she's mm -hmm. like, no, mom, you are wrong. That is not what memes are. <laughs> Let me show you what memes are. Um, yeah. So it went back and forth a little while. But yeah. now I think I've convinced her that I actually have some authority in this, in the, in the meme realm. But she's pretty, She, I mean, she's still very skeptical of um, any authority I might have over the meme world that she is um, right. living she, in. Did you so. say 13 or 14? 13. She's 13? Going to be 14 soon? Yeah. Yeah. That's the age at which skepticism towards anything parents say comes to the fore. Um, we had this funny, uh, my uh, brother-in-law, Scott, and his wife, Julie, and their sons, Colin and Graham, were visiting 
uh, not too long ago. It was over their spring break. And uh, we had essentially the same conversation over dinner. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it was essentially um, about memes and somehow the topic came up of uh, that a meme originally meant something much, much broader. It wasn't this specific thing about the internet. Yeah. Um, culture traits. Yeah. But those, I mean, the internet memes, they're so good at replicating, right? Yes. Yes. Internet memes. So the internet, when it was invented, emerged, however it came to into being, um, it created this amazing new form in which information could be transferred. And so it can be transferred for all sorts of reasons, wonderful reasons and terrible reasons and silly reasons. And uh, the, the proliferation of all kinds of memes in the sense of culture traits is just amazing on the internet. Um, I have an example of such a thing. Yeah, okay. sure, please. Um, it's a, kind of a little bit of a long story, but I know you like the story. Oh, so are I'm you going to tell, tell this story? You think it's time? I think it's time, Take they're ready yes. for it? Yeah. Podcast listeners? Uh, so a long time ago, before, so go back into, into <laughs> before the... Before the days of the internet. Yes, into the darkness of time. <laughs> I was uh, a young anthropologist. This is in 1989. And uh, my wife, Beth, and I, we were um, big fans of David Letterman at the time. So we, this is in the days of videotape. Yeah, well, maybe so, you should also explain who David Letterman is. Oh, David Letterman. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. Good point. <laughs> David Letterman was an, a talk show host. Um, and, uh, it was the Late Show, right? It was the Late Show on CBS. No, it was on NBC at that time. Then he switched to CBS later. Yeah. At the time, he was uh, on Late at Night, but uh, it was an irreverent program and so on and so forth. And it was one of our favorite shows. So he had an anniversary special, and we, we taped it like we taped all the shows. This was back um, in the days before it was live streaming. Yes, very much so, very <laughs> and, much so. No one had even thought of video yes. and binge watching yes. and all of that, where you had right. to actually put right. in a VHS tape and then program a yes. VCR, whatever that stands for. Video to, cassette recording. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. Uh, yeah. record something if you wanted to I don't to even know what it. VHS stands for, video, video something. Um, yes, that's what we had to do. And we thought it was normal. Um, <laughs> and we factored, we thought we were uh, very lucky to have such cutting edge technology. Yes. And so we taped the program and uh, watched it later because my wife had a job that required her to work at work nights in the newspaper business. Do I have to explain what newspapers are? No, no, I think okay. that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so we watched it and as we were watching it, uh, there was an ad for Nike hiking boots. Um, and lucky for us, we had just gotten back maybe a year before for, from Kenya where we'd done field work, uh, with people, um, in rural Kenya who speak a language called Ma. Um, and the ad was shot with these same sorts of people, a group, of, a group in Northern Kenya called the Samburu who speak the same language. And they had a bunch of them, uh, young men and young women running around in the Kenyan land landscape with Nike hiking boots on. And at the end of the uh, ad, there's a man, a Samburu man, who turns to the camera and says something to the camera in Ma. And below his face appears the phrase, just do it. That was the Nike slogan. The the closed captioning for the... Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And that that was their their ad slogan at the time. Maybe it still is. I I think it is still. That's 30 years years ago, but yeah. Um, That's a good meme, right? It is a good meme. Just do it. It's great. But the, the fact is that that's not what he was saying. So... My wife and I were able to watch it and 
he spoke very quickly, but we were able to translate it. Uh, what he was actually saying was, I don't want these, give me big shoes. Um, so they were too small. They were too small. <laughs> apparently, apparently the, they, they had figured out that it was not, the translating just do it in the mall was, wasn't really feasible. It doesn't make sense. So they thought they might make a joke about, um, you know, hey, these shoes don't fit, I need bigger ones, something like that. But they decided to throw that out the window and just use his face, his voice, with just do it. So, um, as I mentioned, my wife was in the newspaper business at the time. She thought this was hilarious. Um, so, so, she, so basically the marketing department was just like, oh, we have video yes, of exactly. a Samburu man saying something while wearing Nike shoes. So we're just going right. to pretend that he's saying just right. do it, even though he really is saying he's really, no, he doesn't like the shoes. Nobody will know. <laughs> Who, nobody speaks this language. Except for Lee Crump, yeah. anthropologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's so she was working at a paper that was owned by the same uh, large company, Gannett, that, that owned USA Today. Uh, she knew somebody at USA Today. She called him up. This is before email, so she definitely used the telephone. And um, told him about the story. They thought it was funny. Uh, they interviewed me, put it on the front page of USA Today. So it got picked up uh, by USA Today. Uh, everybody seemed to find it very entertaining that this, this huge corporation would you know, stumble in this way. So it got picked up uh, by a lot of different news outlets, Time Magazine, New York Times, Forbes, um, all over the place for about a week, a lot of attention for about a week. Um, and it was mentioned, I guess that the most high profile was I was interviewed by entertainment tonight for that. So I got on TV, um, and Johnny Carson mentioned you, it you in his monologue. And now, now I'll explain who Johnny Carson was. So Johnny Carson at that time was the king of late night talk shows. Uh, he had been for a long time at that point, but he was uh, a huge name. He was the Tonight, Tonight Show host. Um, and so Jimmy Fallon, I think, is today's Tonight Show host. Um, so he was the precursor to Jimmy Fallon, to Jay Leno, and so on and so forth. So he mentioned it in his monologue. So that was a big deal. But he didn't say he didn't your mention, name. He didn't mention my name. He just I was a guy. A guy <laughs> who speaks the language, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it, at that point, it was, you know, had it, its moment. And then it faded because there was no reason to keep it going. No way to keep it going. But it was a meme that spread yeah. quite a lot. It spread. Rapidly. Yeah. It's funny because it's but like a meta-meme, right? primitive meme. It was, memes, yeah. it was a, a meme about a meme, right? Because just yes. do it is a meme. And then it was yeah. like they were pretending yes. that someone in this other society, this other culture yeah. had said that yeah. meme, but really it wasn't. So it was almost like a... A, a meta, meta meme, meme about the meme, yes. not actually, I don't know. It, it's yes. interesting. There's a lot of meta levels there. Yeah, right. Um, so it died for a while. It died until, um, you know, so until that was 1989. <laughs> and then, then the, the internet came along. And so in the early 90s, sometime maybe 93, 94, I started getting emails from people because emails existed finally. <laughs> Such a relief. Um, we got emails and I'd get emails from people saying, uh, I read about this online. Is this really true? And uh, what had happened is that somebody had taken the story from Forbes magazine and they had posted it on a website um, and they'd taken the date off it. So they had made it a, sort of a eternal meme by making it seem eternally fresh as if this had just, just happened. So I got in the habit of replying to these emails saying, yes, in fact, that had just happened. It had happened, but it had happened in 1989 which mm -hmm. was, you know, five, ten, whatever years ago. Yeah. And um, 
the, uh, my interpretation of that is that there was essentially a mutation in the meme. The meme mutated slightly by dropping its date. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody had done that deliberately, I suppose. And that had allowed it to gain um, many, many more viewers, much more attention. Hmm. So that suggests that like sometimes there can be some sort of a, a tag maybe on a meme that mm-hmm. like if it's a time tag or maybe a spatial tag or something yes. that like limits the scope of its relevance. And if you take those off, then it mm-hmm. becomes relevant widespread, to eternal. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I'm not saying this is eternal. That's an exaggeration of, <laughs> yeah. of the importance of this particular meme. That's certainly not true. But yeah, I think that's true. Um, if you, you make it so that it's, something that's true in general rather than true in a specific context, you might be able to extend its lifespan as mm-hmm. a meme, get more people to pay attention to it and spread it. Do you think there are other examples uh, of that That's kind a of? good question. Um, there was a, um, going back into my, my the lecture notes in my brain, um, there was a uh, another primitive technology, a chain letter. Uh, it's called the St. Jude Letter. And the reason I know about this is because it was written up by um, Richard Dawkins, the origin, originator of the word meme, and a collaborator of his named Oliver Goodenough as an example of a meme, of, a, of a, essentially a virus meme, mm-hmm. uh, a meme that went viral. Yeah. But it was before it, the days of the internet. As a mechanism for yeah. replicating itself and right. spreading into other brains. Right. And they, they described the letter, and essentially it was, you know, you will have good luck if you copy this letter over 10 times and mail it to 10 friends. But if you don't do that, you'll have bad luck. And in the, their write-up of this thing, they do describe some changes that were made to the letter that enhanced its attractiveness. Hmm. Um, I think making dire predictions about the fate of people who failed to pass the letter on was one thing that enhanced its popularity. It's like, well, you know, you don't want to tempt fate and not spread the letter on if such terrible things are happening to people who don't spread the letter. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's ways you can tweak things and make them more popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And zombify people in the process. That's right. So, yeah. shall we talk a little bit about culture in general and sure. zombification? So, yeah. um, you know, how does culture relate to you know, this whole idea of zombification mm-hmm. that, you know, your brain can, or your whole organism can get under yeah. the influence of forces that are not necessarily your mm-hmm. own goals? Your own goals, right. Um, I think it's very relevant. Um, so if you think about it, what is culture for? Culture, culture is information we get from other people. And why do we bother to pay attention to that information? Because it makes life easier. And the reason why we do that or why we've been evolved to do that and why that's adaptive is because um, our brains are delicious as they may be. <laughs> they are uh, of limited capacity. We can only think so much. We can only accommodate so much information and so mm-hmm. much cogitation. And um, so sometimes uh, sort of letting our guard down and allowing these culture traits to come in from other people and allowing them to guide our behavior might make a lot of sense. Okay. Can um, you give an example? Yeah. So, so say you're new to a place. You're okay. traveling and you arrive in some new place uh, and they do things somewhat differently. Um, it's, it's a good idea probably to, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Okay. Um, or as the Maasai say, um, if you go to a land where people eat feces, eat them yourself. Oh, that's gross. That's disgusting, but you know, um, it's basically yeah. eat, eat shit. Yeah. If, if you, yeah. if that's what people there do, maybe, the, maybe they just, know, 
Yeah, maybe they're just saying you should get the local microbiome. Yes, that's, that's what probably what it is. Yes. <laughs> they're ahead of their time. <laughs> microbiome understanding. Um, but yeah, it's it, they may know something you don't know. Yeah, uh, like, and this has been like sh- the health benefits of fecal transplant. Like sometimes. exactly, yes, the health, maybe yes, they right. know something about that. You don't know. <laughs> so since you're new there and you don't know the way the lay of the land, you don't know what's good to eat, what's bad mm-hmm. to eat, you don't know what, what the deal is. Maybe you should go ahead and just imitate what the folks there are doing locally, mm-hmm. and that's actually been demonstrated to occur in lots of species. There's a lot of imitation of the behavior of the locals mm-hmm. in various contexts of across many species, especially food acquisition mm-hmm. and mate uh, preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some studies with guppies. Guppies, they have much more, they're much more cognitively challenged than we are. <laughs> their, their brains are tiny. And sure enough, if they are introduced to a new tank, new fish tank, uh, then they don't know where the food is. They'll follow the fish who are already there to the food. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if that's not actually the optimal way to get there. But they don't know what the optimal way to get there is, the shortest route. So they follow the fish that are already there. They're, they're just picking up on the information that's available in the environment thanks to the fish that are already there. And humans do the same kind of thing. There's an experiment that is basically a human equivalent of that guppy experiment where they had people um, come in and they were doing, ostensibly they were told that they were going to do an experiment at a table that involved putting a puzzle together. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, what they were doing is taking them to this table via a somewhat circuitous route, a long route. Uh-huh. Um, and then they saw whether or not, when they were given an opportunity to go back to that same table, did they go ahead, keep taking that long route like the guppies did in the tank? Or did they take a short route that was obviously there and more efficient? Most people took the long route. They took the route that they'd sort of been taught um, mm-hmm. tacitly to mm-hmm. take. Simply because it's it's cognitively easier. Just you're familiar with it. It's mm-hmm. what the person did originally. So they they were wondering whether they people might have thought that there was a reason to take that route. So they did a, a follow up experiment where they made it very clear that there was no reason to take that route mm-hmm. by making it a, a deliberate detour so that the the person running the experiment could put a poster back on a bulletin board. Mm. So that it was clear that 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 wasn't a special route. There was nothing especially good about it. It was just to put the bulletin board back in place. Um, And people still followed. Mm. So do we sort of like use other people's brains as a crutch or like others of the same species as a crutch so we we don't have to use our own brains? Yes, we do. And uh, it it is in a sense to, to some degree that is adaptive because again, maybe those folks know something you don't know. So again, there's, there's, there's uh, mate choice copying been shown across many species that if you can, Make it appear that members of one sex, usually the females, find particular kinds of males more attractive, that other females will pick up on that and behave accordingly. Find those Are you males. talking about college? <laughs> Indeed, yes, that happens in college. It also happens with fruit flies. Um, if you attach. Does it happen with fruit flies in college? In college, probably does. Okay. Get a bunch of bananas in a dorm room and you'll get the same thing happening. Um, yeah, they attached, there was a recent experiment. They, they took uh, male fruit flies. And they attach little special markers to them so they would look distinctive, little pink balls or little green balls, and made it look as if they were mating with a female fruit fly. And when female fruit flies were exposed to this, they became attracted to males who had those same characteristics, the pink balls. They were looking for balls. the ballers. Yes, they are. They are, <laughs> they are looking for the ballers. Um, so fruit flies do it, guppies do it, birds do it, 
I don't know. Bees, I don't think, do it. <laughs> Are we singing a song now? <laughs> <laughs> but humans do it. Humans also have been shown that if you just give slight hints that maybe other women, say, find particular guys attractive, those guys get higher ratings. Don't some guys, like, specifically do this mm-hmm. where they, like, heard cultivate that. friendships with women who are attractive just so they can go around yeah. with them and then... I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard that, yes. yes. It's, I've seen it in movies and TV shows. And so <laughs> too, but, yeah. But the reason why that would work is because, again, it's it's uh, uh, taking advantage of the fact that we have these sort of cognitive shortcuts of using information that's already out there in the environment because it's, it's often cheaper, easier, and a better bet than trying to get your own information. Mm-hmm. Learning individually can be very expensive compared to learning socially, picking up what other yeah. people are doing. That can potentially be a big problem in the mating domain if it's like, oh, somebody else has already chosen this person as a mate. That must yes. mean they're a good one. And then it can be, yes, that can yeah. lead to conflict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could lead to conflict. But it doesn't have to be so explicit as, as that they have chosen them as a mate. It can just be an indication that they find them attractive. Mm, okay. So there's one experiment where there's just mug shots and they slap, you know, you know, uh, full frontal mug shots and profile mug shots next to each other. And in some of the, the, the profile mug shots, there are women who appear to be smiling at mug shots of men. And it's actually quite clear that they were not in the same room when the pictures were taken mm. and that they're not actually smiling at these guys. So it's just a perceptual it's just thing. A, yeah. Just, it triggers this little part of the brain that apparently says, well, apparently that guy is attracted to her. So and they weren't maybe, like mugshots like when the guys were getting no, you know checked in. Not not, jail. not criminal mugshots, just like drivers. <laughs> the same kind of mugshot yeah. you get when you have a driver's, right, right, driver's right, license right, yeah. taken. Yeah. Um, and that's all it takes, just a little hint. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't have to be. So say that you've got a guy who has read this literature and thinks he has an attractive female friend mm-hmm. that he's not actually involved with romantically, takes her to a bar, say. Yeah. Um, all she has to do is be with him. She doesn't have to appear to be involved right. with him to incre- increase his attractiveness. Interesting. Um, that's it. That's, that's enough. Hmm. So it doesn't have to lead to a conflictual situation, but it could. Right, right. Yeah. So this aspect of like paying attention to what others do and copying them, imitating them, that can, that mm-hmm. can be like a cognitive shortcut that that's allows a cognitive shortcut. Yeah. rely yeah. on other people's brains. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But there's like, so when does it go from just imitation to culture, like you know, what's ah. that transition? Well, at a very so, the, there's different ways of transmitting culture. So, mm-hmm. an imitation is a very sort of basic and simple one. Um, there are others that are actually even more basic and more simple. Um, I don't want to get too technical, but there's one called goal emulation that mm-hmm. is just, um, uh, or, or uh, the, the most simple one is stimulus enhancement, where the only information that's being transmitted from one individual of a species to another is that something's interesting. Hmm. Um, that, you know, somebody of my species finds this thing interesting. I'll check it out too. Okay. So very little information is being transferred, but as long as a little bit of trans- transfer is happening, then that counts as a little bit of culture. Okay. So really, really minimal culture. Imitation is more sophisticated than that because you're, you're Im- if you're truly imitating, you're imitating the motions they're going through, mm-hmm. you know. And there's a lot of, there's some interesting literature on how humans are, we talk about aping. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really should be called humaning because we we ape much better than apes do. Hmm. Um, there have been experiments so we're, done. we're out aping apes. We're out aping saying. apes. Um, at least when we copy each other, we are. But we're apes, actually. We are right? actually apes. True. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, But still, um, the we shouldn't be using the yeah. term ape. 
typing yeah. for something that is yeah. specific. It's, it's really more of a human thing. Yeah. So we overcopy. If you if you show people how to accomplish a task mm-hmm. and you include extra steps that aren't really necessary, mm-hmm. uh, they will typically include those steps too, mm-hmm. even though they're not efficacious in any way. They don't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Because who knows? They don't know exactly how the mechanism works. They don't know what's effective and what's not. So why not? You know, it's not costing anything. Mm-hmm. So they overcopy. And some experiments with chimpanzees years ago indicated that they overcopy a lot less. Mm-hmm. They're much more focused on the goal. They figure out how to get the goal, how to get the food reward, mm-hmm. and they don't overcopy quite so much as and, people do. And is that because they're, you know, able to understand the goal more? Or, you know, is it because humans are like more worried about not? following norms of what you're supposed to do. I think I haven't, that literature is something I haven't read for a while, but I think there's some ambiguity there Mm -hmm. about whether the humans are, yeah, worried, worried about the, maybe the observer might judge them poorly if they're not imitating completely and accurately, whereas chimps wouldn't care about that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some questions there about exactly why humans are overcopying. The theory anyways, humans overcopy because by and large, it's so adaptive to just go ahead and copy. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and allow yourself to be zombified in a mm-hmm. sense, just a little bit, mm-hmm. by the culture traits that um, we become adapted to do that, that it's a human predisposition to overcopy um, because usually it's adaptive. But there is some ambiguity in the literature about exactly why we overcopy. I mean, certainly there must be some situations where it's a vulnerability too, right? It's not oh, certainly. like it's just always well, yeah. a good thing that right. we copy right. others and right. well, sometimes for no yeah. real reason other than right. that other people are doing it. Right. Well, the, you know, moms always say when, when a kid says that they did X, Y, or Z thing because Joey was doing it, mm-hmm. you know, would you jump off a cliff if Joey was doing it? That's such a creative not. line. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of situations in which you want to be careful and not... So there's a uh, somebody you know, Rob Kurzban, suggested in a publication a while back that there ought to be sort of a, a balance between gullibility and skepticism. That that uh, there's a payoff to being gullible towards certain kinds of culture traits, but also a value in being skeptical about other kinds. And we ought to have a mix of strategies. Where in some cases we're skeptical. Say if somebody's trying to establish a hierarchy and is claiming that they have some reason to. Uh, to give us instructions or something that might be to our detriment, be skeptical. Uh, but if the goal is, if say, the example he offers is technology. If you come across a technology and it seems to be working, then you run with it, you use it, don't be skeptical about it, it seems to be working. Uh, one that I like, the example I like is social, what I call social coordination conventions, which is any sort of... Uh, a culture trait that helps us get our act together to coordinate our behaviors. Mm-hmm. Just as an aside, though, yeah. probably shouldn't imitate Rob Kurzban's behavior. Okay. <laughs> maybe, Just want to make not. sure to get maybe, that right. out there. Maybe not. For those of you who know. Maybe not. Be careful. Be yes. skeptical. Yes, Be careful. that's right. Okay. Please go um, Yeah. But uh, I want to give credit where credit's due. And I thought, yeah. he, I thought yeah, his, yeah. as a language, gullibility, skepticism was nice. Because, yeah. um, you know, easy words that, that we all can tie into. Um so social coordination conventions, my example of the most extreme type would be language because language can be used for many things once it gets going, but it's sort of original purpose as far as I know and as far as people who studied it know, was coordinating behavior, getting people on the same page, sharing information so that we can act together, act in concert to accomplish common goals. Is that pretty much like the accepted 
idea. I of think what it's language pretty widely before? accepted. It would have to, in order for language to have evolved originally, it would have had to have been a kind of a win-win proposition. Again, once once you get a language established, you can use it for many things. Mm-hmm. Not always win-win. You can use it to rip people off. Mm-hmm. But in order to get it off the ground, to to differentiate language from animal signaling systems, I think, and other other people have argued the same thing. Um, I'm thinking in particular a linguist named Derek Bickerton, who's okay. argued about this in a book called Adam's Tongue. Um, that yeah, it would have had to be a win-win thing where the the goal was to coordinate behavior mm-hmm. because he, he, you have you have to have both the sender evolving to make the sound exactly. and the receiver evolving to understand understand them. it and, and believe so, it and buy into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, has so to, he he thinks that so there's some evidence that way long ago in, in human evolution, our ancestors were not so much hunters as scavengers and that we were. Uh, aggressive scavengers that we would... Um, are, you, are we talking about zombies now? Well, it would be a kind of zombie-like <laughs> behavior in a sense because the idea would be that there would be kills, uh, mm-hmm. anim- large animals killed by mm-hmm. other species and that our ancestors would have coordinated their efforts to chase those animals off and then get the meat and so mm-hmm. on from that those dead animals rather than doing the hunting themselves. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some good evidence to that, mm-hmm. to back that up. Mm-hmm. So his argument is that the sort of original thing that separated language from animal signaling was a cooperative sort of signal, a win-win signal, saying, hey, you know, there is an opportunity here. Let's coordinate. Mm-hmm. Let's go for it. So it's almost like you have to have trust sort of before yeah. language can even get yes. off the ground. So these would have been, you know, small groups of closely related individuals. So that mm-hmm. is plausible, yeah, I think mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're learning a foreign language, um, you are totally gullible to its rules, right? You don't, somebody who is a native Spanish speaker tells you that this thing I'm sitting in is called a silla, a chair, mm-hmm. then you don't argue with them. You don't you know, say, well, I don't think that's a really very good word for that. Why don't you call yeah. it this instead? You, you go with it. You go with the flow. Uh, because you, well, your goal in learning the language is to be able to interact with Spanish speakers, and yeah. you're not going to argue about the rules of the language, what the words mean. Right. Just go for it. So you can get people in trouble when they're learning you the can. language. You can. Yeah. And that's fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that can be fun. You can take advantage of it um, by teaching them things that are funny sounding when foreigners say them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've had that done to me. And oh, yeah. I've done it to other people, too. That? Yeah. You have some stories? Uh, no, but. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. Um, no, no. I don't have any really great stories about it. Of course, it may have been pulled on me and I didn't even know what was happening. Right. Because you know, the right. entertainment value. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that, that can be funny. Yeah. So back to the sort of question of like when we can be zombified by culture in a way that is like not in our benefit, like when others can get us to do things that we might not actually yes. decide to do willingly. How does culture right. sort of figure into that space? Right. Well, one way to do it. So a, a, a funny example would be somebody, you know, taking advantage of a a language learner's ignorance by teaching them to say um, incorrect things that are that come off as funny to a speaker. Mm-hmm. Right. So that would be pretty no- innocuous. But if you think about, um, uh, you could, you know, use um, people's predilections to be cooperative, to coordinate their behavior with others, to be kind to others, to be generous to others, to um, uh, uh, take advantage of that and con them out of their money, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's a lot of examples of people setting up cons that take advantage of generosity, right. um, and that, that tendency to be generous. Um, there's, there's many, many opportunities to exploit people's gullibility, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, 
culture, clearly, the human beings are such a successful species, mm-hmm. in large part because of culture. Culture enables many, many things. Uh, in my view, the most important thing is it really, really enhances cooperation, and that mm-hmm. enhances our ability to do a variety of other things, like mm-hmm. use our environments to our advantage. So we're very, very successful as a species, and culture is a, a, a huge part of that. But it comes with a potential cost. Right. This uh, potential cost that you you might learn things that are bad for you, um, and you might be zombified by um, the you know it could be something that spread uh, not deliberately, um, say a drug addiction, um, or it could be deliberately, say you know the tobacco companies that encourage tobacco consumption, even though they knew that there were problems with tobacco consumption, that it was addictive and leading to cancer and mm-hmm. other diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're taking advantage of our vulnerability to culture yeah. and our predilection to get addicted to things, mm-hmm. to, to use us. Yeah, so it sounds like there's kind of this tension with culture that on one hand it can really help people you know, solve coordination mm-hmm. problems and um, be ultimately more cooperative, but then at the same time it can kind of increase your vulnerability to getting exploited so yes yes that's absolutely true yeah mm. uh and i don't know any easy way to avoid that other than uh learning to be skeptical um that's a lot of what we learn when we grow up i think is our people teach us not to believe everything here so Lee, how do parents help their kids learn about the kinds of things that people might try to Pull over their eyes, you know. Yeah. So how do parents teach their kids to be skeptical? Well, I think sometimes they do it deliberately through, you know, just saying, you know, don't believe everything you hear or read. Uh, but there are more subtle ways to do it um, yeah, that like, uh, like, might like be what, adaptive. Like what, what kind of well, things might parents tell their kids? So, that, uh, you know, parents tell their kids all kinds <laughs> of things that, that uh, the parents know aren't really true. Uh, Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I do think that, that in the long run, kids learn that those things aren't true. Sorry, mm-hmm. kids, if you're listening in here. <laughs> but anybody, any little kids, stop listening here. Santa Claus and Easter Bunny aren't real. They're your parents. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think that in the long run, that, that may teach kids to be a little bit skeptical about things. and say, you know, mm-hmm. it's these things I believed before, I don't, I don't believe it anymore. Yeah. Um, Have you ever and, told your kids oh, something that, gee, other that than, wasn't Other true? than those two things? <laughs> From time to time. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm kind of known in my family as the guy you, you can't believe anything he says um, because I've always enjoyed telling kind of deadpan, made-up things and seeing who will believe them. So I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Oh, a um, couple of examples. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll start with one I don't. you may not be familiar with, actually. We were, we were driving, I think, to JFK Airport. And to get to JFK Airport from New Jersey, you pass by Coney Island. And I, I, it's always helpful if you start off with something that's, that's actually true. Okay. So we're passing right. by Coney Island, and I point out that Coney, it's named Coney Island because a Coney is a rabbit. It's an old-fashioned word for a rabbit. Oh. And there were rabbits there. I didn't there. know that. Yeah, Coney, okay. Coney was a rabbit. Um, and uh, so I said, there were a lot of rabbits there. In fact, and this is where the falsehood begins, in fact, the original Coney dogs were made of rabbit meat. They had That's so gross. many rabbits there. <laughs> You've eaten a rabbit. Come on. That's true. Um, but, you don't like the idea of a rabbit hot dog. Um, 
There were so many rabbits on the island, they had to do something with them. So they, they caught them, they hunted them, and they made them into hot dogs. And there was a, the original Coney dogs. And my kids were in the backseat listening to all this stuff. And they believed that for a while. And then they realized who was saying it. And they, by that time, they, <laughs> they'd come to realize that you can't really believe these stories. That, How old that were they was at that time? Up. Oh, you know, uh, maybe around 10 so that was past the age of ascension. That was no. The no, age of ascension was, was fourteen. Okay. All right. Well, can you but explain the age of ascension? The, yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> so long ago when my daughter, so I have two kids, Lauren and Cooper, and uh, when Lauren was maybe five years old, uh, we had a habit. We would you know tuck her in bed, and sometimes she'd ask us to tell us tell her a bedtime story. So she asked me one night, you know, Daddy, please tell me a story. And um, I said, well, I'm just so tired tonight. I don't think I have the energy to come up with a story. But, you know, there is something that Mommy and I have been meaning to tell you about. And she said, what? And I said, well, you know, we're not really from this planet. We're actually from a planet called Xandar. And we were sent here on a mission to study the planet here on Earth. And... When you reach the age of 14, which is the Zandesian Age of Ascension, the mothership will return and we will go back to Xandar where, where you will take your rightful place on the throne as a princess of Xandar. So you were like a Zandesian royal family slash yes. anthropologist. Slash anthropologist Earth. on Earth, yes. 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 Were as, you going to go yeah, back to Xandar know, and like publish some sweet papers oh, about yeah. Earthlings? Yeah, I was going to have such a great career. Um <laughs> Yeah, you know, that happens a lot. Um, and uh, I think this was part informed. that There was a program on TV at the time, uh, Third Rock from the Sun. Mm-hmm. I think that was feeding into my thinking. I mean, that would there. be a pretty good, like, conceit for a movie that, like, you have an anthropologist from another planet mm-hmm. who's coming to study humans, and they actually get a professor job as, as, an, anthropologist. as an anthropologist. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Really good cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be great. Let's let's write that up. It's great. <laughs> Do a treatment. Um, so she thought that was pretty funny. Um, and I thought it would end right there. I thought that nothing would come of this story. Uh, but then my wife went in uh, to, to tuck her in. And Lauren says, Mommy, Daddy says we're from we're not from this planet. We're from Xandar. And at the interesting thing is that I had not said anything to my wife about this at all. But her reaction was perfect. She said... He wasn't supposed to tell you. <laughs> and that made it a thing. That made it a, her favorite bedtime story was, would be stories about Xandar. And uh, when my son came along uh, uh, soon thereafter, he got into the Xandar Act. Um, and they would ask for stories about Xandar. But I, they picked up pretty quickly. Um, in fact, when we went, she was in first grade, um, maybe a year, year and a half after this started, we went and had a teacher conference with her first grade teacher. And the first, the, yeah, the first thing she says to us, so I understand you're from the planet Santa. Um, and uh, so she, Lauren had been talking about it. Oh, and then another, the, the, the little kids in first grade asked my wife when she was there for some event, Lauren keeps saying she's from the planet Xandar. Is she really from there? And my wife's reaction was, now she's not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> So, so did they, like, know that it wasn't true? Yeah, they did. But yeah. kind of like kids sort of suspect maybe yeah. Santa Claus is their parent? Yes, yes. So uh, yeah. okay. they picked up pretty quickly on the fact. So a big giveaway was the fact that they would ask me to make up a story. I'd make up a story describing Xandar in various yeah. ways. 
And then she had asked my wife to do it, and they'd be in conflict. They wouldn't be the same because <laughs> we never got together and got our act together. And, uh, you know, then we covered up with some excuse, like, oh, that, that's on this part of the planet, but on the other part of the planet, it's like that. So. <laughs> Um, so they picked up pretty quickly that it was just a bunch of stuff that daddy and mommy were making up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that did imbue with them at least. So at a minimum, it imbued in my kids a skepticism about things that I say. <laughs> uh, they never know whether I'm making something up or not. And there, there have been times uh, when I'm saying something that's completely and totally true. And they're like, no, I don't believe it. Because that, there's this built-in skepticism. Mm-hmm. It's possible to overdo it. Um but I think, you know, maybe the, if there is a positive thing that came out of that, that they might be, you know, skeptical about things other folks say mm-hmm. and whether they're true or not. parents do that deliberately or did you do that deliberately? No, to no. Ter- it's just what it's just, you do I, to entertain yourself. I do it to entertain myself. <laughs> and I did, it, I did it when I was younger, too, mm-hmm. uh, even before I had kids. I just sort of, if you, because um, early in life, I kind of got a reputation as a kind of a know-it-all. Mm-hmm. I read a lot, a good memory, and I and I didn't hide that any those things. Uh-huh. You know, I just I mean, it's kind of obnoxious, but um, yeah. And so I kind of took advantage of that. Like people think I know a lot of stuff. So what if I just make <laughs> this crazy thing up, put it out there, and see if they buy it? Uh-huh. You know? um, and uh, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> I recommend it. Do you think um, it, Do you think it's fun? Like because you're actually doing something helpful for people or no. just because you're fucking with them <laughs> just fucking with them just it's fun but it, it only works it's only fun if you you know at some point reveal to them that you're just yanking their chain yeah because then then you get to laugh mm-hmm. everybody gets to laugh about it mm-hmm. um so um it's not fun if you just say something that's outlandishly untrue and yet people buy it and then you just walk away mm-hmm. you know you gotta you know Get some uh-huh. reaction out of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. It seems like this might have some relevance to our current information, misinformation yeah. issue. Yes. So, um, so if you're going to say a bunch of stuff that's not true, then you better explain it later and get a laugh out of it instead yeah. of letting it uh, <laughs> yeah. just proliferate on the internet. Just go out there yeah. and yeah, claim that it's true, no matter yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so th- I think this skepticism towards information, you know, the, the things being said by various people, and being spread through social media and, and traditional media. Mm-hmm. That's all culture. It's all culture traits being spread out there. And uh, um, unfortunately, right now, there's quite a bit of it that's not true. Yeah. Um, well, and people spread information not, like, based on the likelihood that it's true, right? Mm-hmm. They spread yeah. it based on is other... It, yeah, is it yeah. interesting, and will it be of interest to other people? Yeah. Yeah, so negative, shocking things, negative things... Yeah. Often are of more interest to people. But the idea there's a lot of evidence that people are more interested in in negative things, um, and that, that grabs so that's newspapers and, and media of various kinds are, are more likely to cover negative things, bad things that happen than good things. And uh, that is unfortunate in the sense that it creates a distorted view of what the world is really like, that it's more full of negative things than good things. Yeah. But it makes a lot of sense adaptively because those those negative things could if we ignore them. Um, we might pay a high cost, but if we ignore good things and just take them for granted, there's not necessarily a high cost to that. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the story about, um, in my evolutionary psychology class, I had people play this meme game where they Mm. had to write, um, a a meme, a few sentences of something Uh on a note card. 
And then um, they would walk around with that note card and say their meme to people who they bump into. Uh And then all they had to do was if they heard a meme that they liked better than theirs to cross theirs out and write the meme of the other person. Right. And And it could be anything. It could be anything. Any any phrase. Yeah. I mean, I asked them to like not be really (laughs) offensive just because Mm -hmm. I didn't think that would be a positive thing for the class. Right. Um, But yeah, it could be, could be anything. But it's going to be words. It's going to be a fairly short string of words. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I had them do this and then, you know, walk around the room and, you know, they just bump into people and say okay. their meme and then cross it out if they want. And um, then I looked at which yeah. meme spread the most. And the one that was the most successful was um, the human nature essay is worth 30% of your grade. <laughs> and the thing is, it was totally not it true. It was not true. It was not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, the guy who um, wrote that, he knew that it wasn't true. Uh-huh. But he thought it would it attract would, attention. Yeah. yeah. And because it would make people, people worry about their essay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And some of the people, so we talked about it later, and some of the people who wrote it, you know, crossed theirs out and wrote that one, did it because they thought maybe it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and others realized it wasn't true, but thought that other people ah. might think it's true. And, and, and find it interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so... But the memes didn't all have to do with things in the class. It no. Could be anything. It, it could, could be, be anything. Like the the sun anything. is purple yeah. or whatever. But, yeah. you know, this this uh, guy chose something that was very relevant to the yeah. class, yeah. right? Very smart. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I have to do... I'm teaching a class on evolution and culture in the fall. I have to do that. Yeah. It's super easy. You yeah. just need a pile of note cards and yeah. it scales up or down. You can do it yeah. with eight people or you can do it with 200. Yeah. That's so, great. That's a yeah. great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Fun yeah. game. Um, so I have to ask, like, big picture. We've got, you know, this whole zombification via culture. Culture can, you know, manipulate us to mm-hmm. sometimes do things that are not in our best interest, but we're vulnerable to that because ultimately there's some sort of payoff or benefit, right, yeah. to being able to be influenced and yeah. kind of, in a way, zombified by, like, the collective in a way, right? You can yeah. do things that are... That you can't do as a yes. group, right? Yeah, yeah. as a individuals, we're pretty powerless. But if we can get our act together with other people, we can do a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, what if we take this whole idea of like you know zombification via culture or our susceptibility to being zombified by culture, mm-hmm. and we like ramp that up like a lot? So we're okay. way more. We're super vulnerable. We're yeah, way more malleable, way more influenceable mm-hmm. by culture, like. What is the, you know, zombie apocalypse of that? Like, what is the, the situation that happens in the world if people become right. way more vulnerable? If, if we're, like, just totally gullible to any, any nutty thing that comes along, then, then all kinds of things. Uh, you could, for instance, have people refuse to vaccinate their children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that would be a thing. Mm-hmm. If enough people did that, then we would have rampant diseases that we've gotten rid of, that we thought we got rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it could be, you know, if we're really completely vulnerable, it could be, you know, the, the way towards health is to, uh, eat things that aren't actually food. Mm-hmm. There have been, there have been isolated cases of cults who thought that the way towards, you know, redemption and salvation is to all kill themselves. Um, right. uh, Heaven's Gate cults comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Remember that one from way back in the nineties, mm-hmm. eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, some people, some of the time are sufficiently, vulnerable to these things that they're being taught 
that they do really, really maladaptive things. So it's a kind um, of apocalypse. Like there, yeah. there are like mini apocalypses of this happening. Like all occasionally, the time is kind of what you're occasionally. saying. Occasionally, most people. Yeah, I, I think that they're they're limited in scope because, you know, very few people have whatever it takes psychologically to fall into those groups that that will do things like commit mass suicide. Um, uh, but some people do. But th- th- again, they don't spread very far because most of us see something like that and are not drawn to it, but we're repulsed by it. Mm-hmm. So our, fortunately for us, the idea of a, 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 a zombie apocalypse called by, caused by culture traits is, to my mind, pretty far-fetched. Mm-hmm. Lucky, lucky mm-hmm. for that. Because we do have this built-in skepticism. Even though we're all vulnerable, we have a lot of skepticism. Could it lead to like really bad fashion choices? It indeed it frequently does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what uh, my wife and her friends call fashion victimhood. That uh, people are victims of fashions because they they're following the fashion, but they're, they're going to look back in ten years and say, "What were we thinking? Why mm-hmm. why did why did we think that was a good idea to wear those clothes?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but at the moment, it seems like a good idea. Unfortunately, the cost is low. You know. Mm. The clothes typically don't cost that much. I well, mean, it depends what kind of clothes de- you're Depends buying. on what kind of clothes you're buying, but run-of-the-mill clothes that most people wear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, in the moment, the, the, the benefit may be that you're connecting with your friends, mm-hmm. that you're all following these trends and you all think you're doing very, very well with this. It's only later that you look back and think that that was a mm-hmm. silly thing to wear. Mm-hmm. So back to, like, the more sort of serious version of the, like, cultural zombification apocalypse we started by talking about the internet and how it's kind of like changed the Mm -hmm. landscape of this and you know your whole story about like the nike just do it it's like actually literally about a meme that died and then was like resurrected Resurrected. and became undead because of the internet yeah yeah very much that's a that's a you can talk about those the, the zombie resurrection of dead memes (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, so so one way to think about the internet um, would be in light of uh, what some people call mismatch theory, the idea that you know we evolved in past environments, and if you take an organism out of the environments in which it evolved and put it in a novel environment, it won't necessarily respond adaptively. So now we're in this environment where we have these this opportunity to spread huge amounts of information very, very widely, very rapidly, but we don't necessarily have sufficient sophistication about that information or skepticism about its sources Mm -hmm. to be able to handle that um, adaptively yeah so you can take advantage of that you can you can be say a foreign power and hire people to spread memes on social media to influence a political election in another country that could happen i'm just just making things up (laughs) but i'm just making shit up right now like i do (laughs) i don't know where i got that (laughs) Um, but yeah, that, those kind of things. And then people are vulnerable to that because there's a certain assumption. Uh, my, my dad told me a story about his mom. So his mom, my, my grandma was a wonderful woman. Uh, but, um, <clears throat> she had a certain gullibility. She believed that, and this is way before the internet, um, that you, if something wasn't true, you couldn't print it. So that in oh, advertisements, wow. like in advertisements and things like that, if it wasn't true, you couldn't print it. And he was trying to, you know, know, actually you can, as long as nobody calls you on it, nobody sues you over it, you can print all kinds of stuff that's not true. Right. Um, And so that didn't make her a totally gullible person. She was very, very aware, for instance, of um, 
what was healthy and what was not healthy to eat. She was sort of a very early health food person and uh, very insistent on, you know, whole grains and um, fresh vegetables and all those things that we now embrace. Mm -hmm. But at the time, people were embracing, you know, what she called pasty white stuff, the Mm -hmm. wonder bread, Mm -hmm. not super healthy bread, and, you know, canned foods and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So it didn't turn her into a super gullible person. But my, my dad, as a young man, was struck by the fact that she thought that there was a sort of a built-in honesty to the system mm-hmm. and yeah, it's not really true yeah so i mean it's almost like as we we're talking about earlier the whole act of communicating kind of presupposes some trust or some mm-hmm. shared interest right like the evolution originally of communication yeah. language at least yeah is absolutely kind of yeah built on that yeah. but then somehow we have to get a layer of skepticism that's appropriate that, yeah. that's on top of that yeah yeah because you know in in the environments in which our ancestors lived i suppose there would have been you know the, the language originated in a context of you know small-scale communities kinship-based communities where there's a lot of trust and reason to trust mm-hmm. where trusting is a pretty safe thing to do then skepticism might sort of have its origins in dealing with people who are outside that community mm-hmm. and where you're dealing with somebody who doesn't share the words or the, the you know the mm-hmm. language you have and then then I, I could imagine that that might be a mm. an evolutionary starting point for for skepticism but that's extremely um speculative on my mm. part mm. um but people do tend to be um you know more skeptical about what folks who come from another place who are you know since playing a different game mm-hmm. they play by different rules mm-hmm. there's some skepticism about what they're doing maybe mm-hmm. they're playing a different game and i don't want to play that game mm-hmm. yeah so do you think this whole skepticism thing is something that people just sort of differ in um individual to individual yeah is it and is it something that's like learned like do you think your kids are like more skeptical because yeah. of the um Zen- it may Zen- be it may be i think uh, they may also pick up on the fact that i'm sort of maybe hyper skeptical about claims mm-hmm. um, by sort of people in authority. Mm. I've always been that way. And I don't know that I was ever taught that. I think that it, I, I don't really know if there's any literature on this mm. about individual variations and sort of inherent skepticism as, as a character trait of people. But just anecdotally, it seems to me like that seems to be true. There seem to be people who are, you know, pretty accepting um, mm-hmm. and other people who are, are, you know, just built in skeptics about things. Mm. And I would imagine life experience plays into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that there's a great literature on that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people who are more skeptical by nature also, like, you know, mess with people more like you do. That may be true. <laughs> <laughs> it's that, like, that come on, everybody. Be. Let's be a little yeah. more skeptical. Yeah, let's don't, don't believe all this <laughs> stuff people say because mm-hmm. sometimes they're just making it up. I mean, it makes me wonder if maybe, I mean, I think that it's, of course well-intentioned to be like let's only teach you know people things that we know to be true but Mm -hmm. that maybe actually having a little bit more the sort of you know critical thinking Mm -hmm. letting kids figure out for themselves maybe not for themselves but giving them the tools to figure out what's true and what's not or evaluate arguments or be like you know is this a ridiculous idea or you know is it something that um, you know, is at least worthy of further discussion yeah. and investigation. Yeah, sort of critical judgment, evaluation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a good skill to have. Yeah. yeah. 
But I mean, it sounds like with your kids, you mostly did that through like telling them wild stories. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I don't think I uh, don't remember making an explicit lesson. Um, I don't think that would have gone over as well because, uh, you know, if you sit your kids down and try to give them explicit lessons about here's the way things work, they, they might give you some resistance to that in part right. because it's boring yeah so maybe a way to teach people to be a little more skeptical of things that are you know just outlandish is to kind of fuck with them a little bit in general yeah. maybe <laughs> <laughs> i hadn't really thought about it that way i hadn't really thought about it that way uh but uh but yeah maybe so um, yeah, and kind of leverage that imagination too of like you know I mean it's yeah. probably way more fun for you also yes, absolutely than sitting yeah. down and being like okay let's talk about how advertisements get made and how yeah. you know how like may, they be, may be misleading sometimes yeah, yeah. that would be yeah. kind of a boring yeah. conversation yeah. to have yeah it has there's one arena in which I have I've, I've restrained myself from the temptation to spin tails okay um, which is in my teaching. That seems wise. Um, yeah, uh, there is there is one case. I run little sort of in class experiments. Okay. In one of my classes, a class mm-hmm. on cooperation, and there the, in that class, I do actually do follow the example of psychologists and in one of the experiments, deceive them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I lead them to believe that they have been put in two different groups based on their aesthetic judgments of landscape photographs. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I don't yeah. have any idea what their judgments are. Yeah. But this is based on a classic experiment. And um, so in that case, I do deliberately mislead them. And so I do kind of get that that happy moment where I get to tell them that, mm-hmm. that everything I just told you was not true. Mm-hmm. And I get that You're smiling smile. a lot right now. <laughs> it's a fun little moment. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, I tell them. I, I don't let it go. Yeah. I tell them. I don't just make stuff up in class yeah. generally. But yeah. then it brings up the question, like, you know, if you're an educator, like – is there space? Should there be space yeah. for... Well, there's fiction. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, there, there is this category of, of uh, I don't know what you call it, sort of a knowledge claim that takes the form of fiction, and we love it. I mean, we're, we're, I'm a total sucker for fiction. I love fiction, whether it's written or a movie or TV show. Um, and I know it's all not true. You know, it's none mm-hmm. of it's true. But that's not what... It's, it's, it has a truth value that's not um, uh, literal. Mm-hmm. It has a truth value in terms of capturing something about the human experience or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why we read it. Sure. Uh, so we have this sort of niche carved out for a, an arena in which you can tell outlandish falsehoods. Yeah. And yet you can be paid very well for it. <laughs> and people know the people know it's false. Sure. And yeah. they love it. Yeah. But but there still remains like, you know, like in the sciences and, mm-hmm. you know, in the social sciences and all that where... Um, the ability to think critically and be mm-hmm. skeptical is super important. You know, should there be some space for actually I don't know, being gullible, being or, or, not or, or, not being or, gullible, or, but like as an educator teaching people how to not be gullible through like more playful stuff. I don't oh, know. I'm, sure. I'm just totally, Absolutely. Yeah. you know, yeah. throwing that out there. Like yeah, what, I think what so. could that look like? I don't know exactly what that would look like, but uh, I like the idea in principle. Yeah. I think pedagogically that could be a great thing. Um, if you could come up with a neat, fun, interactive curriculum, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, like, here are some things 
How do we know whether you know? How do we know that coney dogs weren't originally met out of rabbit meat? Yeah. Why? Why does that seem implausible yeah. to us? Or today in class, we're going to play two two truths and a lie. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell right. you three things, and right. one of them is not true. Yeah. Which one? Yeah. Is a lie. <laughs> yeah, that could be that could be the starting point. Yeah, that be yeah. that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. So, are there any um, tips or ideas that you would offer for? Like how to keep yourself from being unwittingly zombified by culture, by culture. in a way that's not in your best interest? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess, you know, be astute, be skeptical, and, and uh, think about where the information is coming from. Uh, if information is coming to you sort of um, not deliberately, it's just sort of, you know, when you arrive in a foreign country, um, a lot of what you're picking up on is just how things are arranged and mm -hmm. you know, picking up on how people are doing things, the, the local scripts. Mm -hmm. one, one nice metaphor for this is uh, the idea of a script, the kind of the all the world is stage metaphor. Mm -hmm. People follow scripts. Um, and they don't necessarily know they're doing it, but, but as you grow up, you learn the scripts for how to act in a restaurant, how to act in a movie theater. Yeah, some people never learn Some learn people those. don't learn those, yeah. <laughs> Or some people think that the script in a the movie theater is to talk, and it's not. Well, and some people think the script yeah. for everywhere is to be on your phone. Yes, there's also <laughs> that, yeah. Um, but you pick up on those things. So if that's coming to you, not through anybody's deliberate action, it's more likely to be accurate than if somebody's deliberately giving it to you because they might have a, an agenda that you're not aware of. Mm -hmm. So I would say be more skeptical if somebody is giving you information and, and it's possible that they have an agenda that's not mm -hmm. yours. Mm -hmm. Um, politicians come to mind, uh, Bible-pounding preachers come to mind, mm -hmm. um, especially if they're asking for donations. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, some of these situations are fairly obvious, but uh, uh, again, there's a range of variation in skepticism and gullibility across the population. and they, the, the, the number of people who buy into these things doesn't need to be huge for them to be successful. Yeah, well, and I mean, sometimes it can be really tricky, too, because, you know, you might be in a situation where someone is approaching you to have an interaction mm -hmm. and it could potentially be a great positive yes. interaction, yes. but it right. might also be a situation where right. someone is trying to exploit you. And, right. And you throw up barriers. Yeah. So that happened to me, actually. I remember, um, so I spent a lot of time in East Africa, um, doing field work and, um, inevitably there's folks, especially in the big cities like Nairobi, Nairobi has quite a few con artists. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a business there because mm -hmm. they get a lot of tourists and the tourists are naive about how yeah. things work there. Um, and so you, you live there for a while, you, especially if it's clear that you're an outsider, which was quite clear that I'm not native to, to Kenya. Um, you build up a resistance to being approached by strangers mm -hmm. because you figure they have an agenda, Yeah. Uh, especially in those big city contexts. Mm -hmm. um, and so my son and I were traveling to Tanzania, actually, well, probably seven, eight years ago. Um, and uh, there, a guy was getting on the plane with us in Amsterdam, I think it was. And he was a Kenyan. And he approached us and started talking. And um, I was skeptical. My skepticism yeah. about, you know, we were about to land in Nairobi. Yeah. You know, eight-hour flight and we'd be in Nairobi. So, like, my skepticism was building up. It turns out that he was a terrific guy. He was a graduate student at UCLA in history, I think. And he had been drawn to the fact that my son was reading a, a book bird, a bird book, mm. a, a guide to birds in East Africa, because it turns out that he had worked as a guide on birding safaris. And he knew every bird in East Africa wow. backwards and forwards. And so once we sort of let down our guard and 
they, they had a terrific conversation about birding and, hmm. and uh, the amazing birds you can see in East Africa. So, yeah, the, the skepticism that I came to that relationship with turned out to be totally inappropriate. Yeah, but and, then once you exchanged more information, yeah. that became clear. Became right? clear that yeah. that he was, you know, not looking to get anything out of us whatsoever. Just wanted to talk about birds. Yeah, so yeah. I guess maybe there's sort of a, a lesson there that if a situation is ambiguous, as long as you're not under any immediate threat, you can just get more information. Yeah, get more information yeah. and see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, and don't. Yeah, I was overly guarded. Um, it was a, a reaction built up over a long period of time. And, it, it, you know, in that context, it was inappropriate. Yeah. yeah but then yeah. you continued and you ended yeah. up having a great yeah. conversation yeah, about yeah, yeah. birds, which is one great. of the things that yeah. you're really into. I'm into right? birds, but my son was especially into yeah. birds, big birder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, be open, and but, 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 you know, have a little bit of skepticism in the background just in case. Yeah. Well, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Lee, thanks so much for sure. joining us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's fun. And if the says that we're crazy we don't need nobody anyhow but if you don't want to fall in love you better tell me right now and if the whole world says that we're crazy Zombified is a production of ASU and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, and the President's Office at ASU, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, and all the brains that help make this podcast, including Tal Rahm, who does our awesome sound, Neil Smith, our amazing illustrator, and Lemmy, the creator of our theme song, Psychological. Thank you also to the Z team. Uh, graduate students, undergraduates, and others who help to make the podcast happen. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're Zombified Pod. We're Zombified Podcast on Facebook. Our website is zombified.org. And you can also support us. We are an all educational, no ads podcast. So if you can go on Patreon and become a patron, just $1 a month will help support us in making this podcast. You can also buy our merchandise. We have awesome stickers and t-shirts. You can find them on our website, zombified.org. At the end of every episode, I share my brains. And today I wanted to share a little bit about why I chose the title for this episode, The Age of Ascension. So as you will recall, Lee tells a story about how he told his kids that they were from the planet Xandar and that when they were 14, they would reach the age of ascension where they would go back to 
Xandar and take their rightful place as royalty on Xandar. So, um, so on one level, the title came from that story, but the title is also for me about how when we reach a certain age, we kind of ascend to a place where we can get a new perspective and we're not necessarily bound by the information that we have just gotten from our parents or just from the environment that we grew up in. Um, so when we reach that age, I think we're, we become less vulnerable to potentially being manipulated or affected by the environment that we grew up in. It's sort of like you get to a certain point you know, maybe around 14, um, when all the things that your parents have told you, um, maybe you don't take them quite as seriously anymore. There's a lot of conflict often that happens around adolescence about if um, kids actually want to keep doing what their parents say or accept their parents' ideas or norms or values. So, yeah, so for me, the title Age of Ascension was kind of a play on that, um, that, you know, this age when one becomes much more skeptical about the things that one has learned from one's parents and um, sort of previous generations and start when you start to think for yourself a little bit. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural.